This Climate One podcast is sponsored by General Motors. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Today on Climate One, we're biting into the controversy over GMOs. Monsanto and other companies say GMOs are safe and can help feed a hot and crowded world in which more than a billion people are expected to move into urban and middle-class lifestyles in the next 15 years. Food advocates say GMOs should be banned or labeled as a matter of public health and consumers' right to know. Over the next hour, we will look at GMOs and related issues in our food system. Joining our live audience at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco, we're pleased to have with us four guests on all sides of this lively debate. Rob Fraley is Chief Technology Officer at Monsanto. Nate Johnson is food writer at Grist and author of All Natural, A Skeptic's Quest to Discover if the Natural Approach to Diet, Childbirth, Healing in the Environment Really Keeps Us Healthier and Happier. That was an aerobic workout there, Nate. It's a quest for the longest subtitle as well. Longest subtitle ever. And Andrew Kimbrell is founder and executive director for the Center for Food Safety. Jessica Lundberg is seed nursery manager at Lundberg Family Farms. Please welcome them to Climate One. <laughs> Rob Fraley, let's begin with you. You say that people have been genetically engineering food since the beginning of time, and yet GMOs and Monsanto evoke a real strong visceral reaction from people. Why do you think that is? Well, let me, uh, let me start and just say uh, thanks for the opportunity to, to be here this evening. It's always, uh, it's always kind of special for me to come back to San Francisco, and uh, it's a special place for me and a, and a lot of memories and uh, really made a, a big impact on my career. So just as a little bit of background, uh, I grew up on a farm in, uh, in central Illinois and uh, always knew I wanted to be a scientist from the very beginning and did my schooling. And then I had the opportunity to do my uh, postdoc out at UCSF. Uh, just when the biotech industry was uh, was starting in the uh, late 70s and early 80s, and it gave me the the tools and the skills to uh, to go to Monsanto and help uh, develop uh, the biotechnology techniques that have uh, given rise to you know the GMO crops that uh, that we're going to talk about tonight. And I, I look forward to that discussion. So I've uh, I've been doing this for about 32 years, and uh, you know there's a there's a lot of emotion, and yet there's a lot of benefit. And, you know, from a point of view of, uh, of safety, the, the perspective, you know, as a scientist, perspective as a dad, I've got, uh, I've got uh, three, uh, three children. You know, safety for me is, you know, it's the most important thing to start with. And, uh, you know, I kind of draw, you know, on my background as a scientist, I've, uh, I've watched and, and read and studied the, the evolution of crops. And, you know, man has been, uh, you know, improving crops from the beginning of time, whether it's the tomato or the corn or, or all of our fresh fruits and, and vegetables. And I, I really think that, the, you know, they've done that, you know, almost randomly without really the insight of what's going on with, uh, you know, with the genes. And now with the tools we have, we can do what, you know, man has been doing for thousands of years really more precisely. And uh, I think it's a powerful tool. It's not the only tool. And, you know, if anything, you know, I'll, I'll be really clear on that. There's a, a whole set of tools that we're going to need to be able to, you know, to meet the challenge of, uh, of food production for the future. 
Jessica Lumberg, your family is in food production. Uh, how do you think GMOs are different or similar to the kind of stewardship and, and hybridization, that sort of thing that's been going on in farming and agriculture for a very long time? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, you know, like, like you mentioned, uh, we've been selecting crops uh, that suit our needs and our diets and our tastes for uh, the last 10,000 years, I think probably more, more actively uh, in the last two to 3,000 years. Uh, and then, but I think it has gotten uh, more advanced since the 1700s when we actually started developing breeding techniques. And then we've seen quite a change in, it's, in the grand scheme, it's changed very quickly in the last 30 years. Like you mentioned when you came into this uh, with your career. Uh, in 30 years, we've we've been modifying these crops in a way that is different from from what we've ever been able to do before. Uh, I think from the Monsanto website, to, you know, modifying plants to the point that they're exhibiting traits that they wouldn't be able to exhibit in nature. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that that's something that, uh, while it can be awesome from a science and technology perspective of what we can do, uh, I think from a, a farming and a consumer perspective, that's not always something that we should be doing. Uh, from both a uh, food safety and an environmental impact. Uh, and uh, we should be thinking more in terms of the food system and what kind of a food system that we want to promote, especially when we talk about uh, the, the topic tonight is really how are we going to feed people uh, and how are we going to have a healthy food system. And for us, uh, for our family, we don't, we don't use GMOs. We don't support GMOs. In fact, we, we've been very outspoken as far as the need to label genetically modified organisms because we think that that's something that consumers should be able to choose uh, because the, it is a new technology. It is something different and not to be afraid of the different, but we need to be aware of the difference and be able to make those choices. So that's, that's really where, where we're coming from as, a, as farmers and as people who are selling products directly to the public. We'll get into some of the food system issues uh, in just a moment. But uh, Nate Johnson, tell us the story about how you came to write about this and you found what you found, hyperbole on both sides. Yeah. Well, I, I came to write about this somewhat unwillingly. You know, I'd, I'd written this book looking critically at claims about what's natural and it, it would have fit very well to, to look at GMOs in that book. Um, but it, it was such a technical issue. It was sort of so boring to me and I didn't want to deal with it and uh, the, cl the claims were so, the rhetoric was so high, you know, I just sort of put it on the back burner and then I came to work at Grist and my editor said, I really want you to, to look into this um, and so I figured I'd knock it out in a couple weeks and it ended up taking me six months to kind of scratch the surface a little bit. I, I came to it kind of from starting from the perspective of thinking, you know, this is something, I know that people aren't dying from GMOs, they've been around long enough, it's not... It's not something that I'm worried about in a, an acute way, but there's, we're, we're fiddling with tomatoes or, or corn in such a way that maybe we're changing something that we don't know about that will impact our nutrition years down the road in, in a way that we don't understand. So as I, as I looked into the claims um, about health and about the environment, I, I softened, I suppose. I, became, I found much and much less to be worried about in every case. And once, once you're not so worried about the health claims, it sort of domino affects uh, some of these other claims as well. And how did people react? How did some grist readers, et cetera, react to your changing your mind or changing your, softening your views on GMOs? Right. Well, I, I, first of all, I want to say that there were a lot of people who were really happy to see what I'd done. Um, you know, I think this is an issue where 
kind of the straight ahead journalism happened 30 years ago when these things were first coming out and people were assessing it in a kind of objective way. And then there's been 15 years where most of the news that we've had about this is sort of from an advocacy position from one side or the other. So there were a lot of people who were like, finally, I've been looking all over for a way to get into this and find out what the facts are. It's nice to have this. But that being said, I had lots of um, people who were very upset with me. You know, I, I had my face photoshopped, um, you know, and, and people yelling at me, you know, when I appeared on radio programs and, and that sort of thing. Um, I was called all sorts of nasty names. Nate Johnson is a food writer for Grist. Andrew Kimbrell, um, is there scientific evidence about human health from directly eating GMO foods? And that is a, a, a difficult question to answer. There is uh, science on both sides, and I think that the burden should be on the industry to prove that the food is safe. If you're putting new products patented, and let me remind everybody here that everything that Monsanto has put into these, these novel crops, and that means novel DNA, that means uh, viral DNA, that means bacterial DNA, that means antibiotic markers. All those things are patented as completely novel. They've never been in food before, so we can get rid of the beer and yeast argument. Our patent office has said they're completely novel, and Monsanto's accepted those patents. So we haven't really done the work. Monsanto hasn't done it, our government hasn't really done the work to say, are they safe? And that seems to me is not the burden of the NGO or the other community. That's the burden if you're putting a new product on the market with novel novel proteins that have never been before in that food, it would seem to me that it is your burden, not the burden of others, to, to prove that it's safe. And that they have not done. Having said that, that's exactly the wrong question, if I can say, Greg, because the, 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 the real problem that we have here is that 85% of all the genetically engineered crops out there and that Monsanto sells are, are, are genetically engineered with some bacterial DNA that makes them tolerate huge amounts of pesticide, herbicide spraying. Uh, last year, Monsanto made $14 billion selling its Roundup and the seeds that can tolerate this huge amount of Roundup. So this is about chemical companies selling chemicals. It's not about feeding the earth. In 30 years, in 30 years of research, private and public, we have yet to see a GMO crop that has greater yield, that does anything about malnutrition. There's not a single commercialized crop that does anything about a better taste, lower cost, it has really been about finding a trick that they found in the early 80s, quite by chance, actually. I think you could probably tell the story, Rob, uh, that allows them to use a heck of a lot more of their chemicals. And for those that have fought for years, and I know there's many people in the audience that are like this, to get the Organic Food Production Act passed and to make sure that we have organic standards that are integrity, and I know the Lundberg family is devoted to this, we have been able to save 30 to 40 million pounds of pesticide each year that would have been used if not for organic. And here we come with the technology, with whatever the greenwashing, they're selling chemicals, about 140 million more pounds of Roundup, about in total about 115 more million pounds of, of, of chemicals each year being used on our crops. So that actually dwarfs all that we've saved during organic. So if you wonder why people that fight for organic are pretty pissed about this, that's why. Because we've spent all that time trying to save us having less toxic, more sustainable agriculture. And here's the technology, 85% without, we wouldn't even be here talking about it if it wasn't for that 85% that is specifically designed so that more toxic chemicals can be used. That's the right question, I think. Rob Fraley, is it about more application of herbicides and pesticides? No, I think you, you have to take, uh, take it back one step further. Um, it's about the challenges that farmers face. So I grew up on a farm. You know, I can remember, uh, you know, with my dad uh, farming, 
you know, the challenges that, uh, that occur when, uh, when you have weeds, when you have insects that are uh, devouring your crops. You know, farmers around the world face tremendous challenges, you know, to, to grow the crops in the face of, of these kind of pests. And as, you know, kind of as I look into the future, uh, those challenges are actually going to get worse because climate change, I think one of the big implications of climate change is, you know, small temperature changes are going to start to affect literally when, uh, when insects hatch, when you have disease outbreaks, when weed seeds germinate. And, you know, my view is we're going to need all of the tools that we can have. So, you know, the advances in breeding are important. The advances in biotech that have given farmers new tools to help control weeds and insects are critical. I think there's a lot of things that, that Jessica does in her practices that, that make an awful lot of sense. The crop rotation, uh, cover crops, uh, microbes have a, 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 are, a, are a new tool that plays in this. You know, my, my view on this is with the challenge that's in front of us, uh, we need all the tools, and I hope there's folks in this room who, uh, who will help invent uh, a few new ones. You know, I mentioned earlier that I had the very special experience of being out here in San Francisco when the innovation around biotech really started. I mean, the, the GMO industry really started here with uh, the ability to, to create human insulin as a product. I took that knowledge to figure out how to, how to create new crops with features. And, and it's, it's kind of interesting to me right now what's happening is a, another very powerful tool is being developed right here in the city within a, within a few blocks of here, and that's the precision ag tools. That's the ability to, to use the, the advances in information technology to be even more precise in terms of how and where we farm and, and how we use crop chemicals and, and how we plant our seeds. And, and so really it's, it's kind of interesting to have the conversation here tonight in, in really the, the, the part of the world that has really given us these two innovations, which, you know, I think we'll look back at some point in time and say that the advances in biology and the advances in information technology are, are going to create a, a, a wonderful opportunity for us to not only meet the challenges for food production, but I think exceed it and ultimately give us the ability to, to be smart enough where we can start to take actually farmland out of production. And I really believe we, we pretty much are getting to that point, and I think it's really exciting. Rob Fraley is Chief Technology Officer at Monsanto. Uh, Rob Fraley, though, there's another approach to this, that, which is uh, concerned that 95% of crop varieties have disappeared in the last century, and that it's the monoculture that makes crops vulnerable, that if there was more diverse crops, that that would uh, achieve the resilience in the face of climate change and, and pests and other things, so that uh, fertilizers and technology are one way, but another way would have more diversity of seeds and more diversity of, of, uh, of crops, and that's kind of the way it has been in nature in the past. I'd like to hear your response to that, and then we'll get Jessica Lundberg on that. Uh, I, I think those are all important considerations. Uh, you know, as a company, you know, one of the, the things that I think has hurt us a lot is we've been so closely identified with GMOs that a lot of the other tools that, that we work in and collaborate with, you know, small companies and startups here and universities. I was just, uh, yesterday I was at uh, UC Davis talking to folks that we, uh, we collaborate and today I spent some time with, uh, with scientists from, uh, from Berkeley. You know, uh, you know, everyone looks at us as GMOs and, you know, bug control and weed control traits. But, you know, I've got here, uh, you know, some of the cool things that we're developing. So just outside of Davis is our lar second largest research site in the, in the country where we do a lot of uh, fresh fruits and vegetables. And, uh, you know, 
it's a combination of, of the biotech products, the breeding advances, the information technology. There's so many tools that are being developed that I think will allow us, along with smart policies and, and good regulations, you know, achieve what we, uh, what we all want to achieve. I think there's you know, a, a real common ground in terms of what we all want. I mean, everybody wants food security. Everybody wants to improve the environment. And, and I hope tonight we get a chance to not only talk about what our, our differences are, but what, what we can do and, and how we can achieve those. Jessica Lumberg, let's get you on the, the diversity of types of, of crops and seeds and how that is sort of nature's own way to, uh, to have food resilience. Sure. Well, I think that uh, that, that is one of the, the big issues that we're talking about. And with, uh, with some of the potential in the technology, I think that has caused a consolidation of some of our seed and genetic resources. One of the issues that we, we know gets brought up with this is, uh, is farmers not being able to save their seed because of the patent technology but then also the development of some of the terminator technologies uh, so that that forces uh, farmers to not be able to save their seed. But I also see it from the other side, um, uh, the research side of it, that consolidation of seed and genetic resources. We do need more diversity. We need to have more tools, not less tools available. And that, that consolidation means that there's less for farmers to choose from, less to be selected from. And some of the technology that I think uh, that is allowing the genetic modification can have tremendous benefit to our food systems. Genetic assisted or marker assisted breeding can actually take a traditional breeding system and provide us with some of the same advancements that we see that, that are touted by GMOs in a very short amount of time and allow us to see that adaptation in crops uh, through traditional breeding methods and give uh, public institutions the ability to move those out to farmers and to have more diversity because like you say, it's going to take more resources, more diversity, more tools for us to be able to be successful as the climate changes, as our, as uh, the types of agricultural areas that we're producing in changes, as our water supply and those challenges uh, uh, provide different scenarios that we're having to farm and to feed more people. Uh, and it's going to take more, not less, so the consolidation issues and the lack of uh, or, or decreasing genetic resources are, are uh, disturbing in some of these technology developments. And how about uh, seed savers and, and open source seeds? There's some things, seed savers are not, are not new, uh, but open source seeds, et cetera, to try to get at a more diverse, uh, I guess, ownership base of, of seeds. Andrew Campbell, you have some thoughts on that? Yeah, actually, one of the things that we're doing, which is very exciting right now, is uh, we're developing a, a, a program to unite the seed savers internationally. There's so many people now that see the loss of diversity. We've lost 90% of our fruit and vegetable diversity just in my lifetime. So, but there are seed savers out there that are preserving that, that are preserving that diversity, but they don't have a way to talk to each other and exchange seeds because there are certain laws and certain things. So we're developing an international seed savers exchange, uh, the first ever, and I'm very excited about that program because it'll let people to talk to each other, know best practices, exchange seeds, you know, across the world. So I, that's absolutely critical, and it's critical for us here in the United States because, you know, we have food insecurity here in the United States, even though we're a net export food nation. And here we have 53% of all of our cropland devoted to corn and soy. And, and I wish that was the worst news, most of that being genetically engineered and being pushed by the companies, of course. But I wish that was the worst news. That, that's, that's not the worst news about it. The worst news is about 90% of that corn and soy is going into to cars and to cattle and into animal factories. And then another percentage is going into high fructose corn syrup and soy lecithin. And so only a tiny percentage is actually sweet corn and anything that anybody eats. So if we're talking about hunger, 
What a terrible model we're setting here in the United States where over half of our agricultural land is used for these two monocultured crops, genetically engineered, sprayed with these herbicides, and they're not even being fed to people. They're being fed to cars and to cattle. That is not a model to feed the earth. That is not a model that's going to do anything about climate change. And that's where we are. And I want to quickly mention one other thing, which is that, because it's been mentioned a couple of times, we, not, we need to be very careful not to get involved in outdated biology. You know, in the early 80s, what was cutting-edge biology, you know, with you and Rob Horsch at the, the, um, in Monsanto, and it was cutting-edge. It's not cutting-edge anymore. Uh, we now know that the idea that a single trait, let's say drought resistance, let's say nitrogen fixation, let's say uh, the ability to produce more of a certain a vitamin, that is not linked to one piece of DNA. It's not a single gene. It's not even polygenetic. So it's not like you can go in and play with a couple of genes. We now know that the cell is an ecosystem and relational. So it's the DNA, it's the RNA, it's the epigenetic markers. It's the relationship of all those dynamically to each other in a cellular environment. So one of the reasons why the only thing we have right now, 99% of all genetically engineered crops, are herbicide tolerant or BT, isn't just because Monsanto's greedy. It's because the biology doesn't allow it to happen. If we are in no position yet to even begin to understand if we're using this technology on how to have serious phenotypic trait alterations by simply manipulating a couple of genes. Just, for example, wheat has 80,000 genes, we have 20,000. So if you add the genes of four Nobel Prize winners, let's say Watson, Crick, Borlaug, and Berg, you wouldn't quite have the number of genes in one cell of wheat. So we are in a very complex, mysterious place right now, and we don't want to play with a system we don't understand. So we're not, this idea of one gene, one trait, that's no biologist worth their salt believes that anymore. It's a much more complex system. And that's one of the major reasons why the biotech industry, including some of the better intentions in the early days of Monsanto, were not able to do that. And we just have these two traits, HT and BT, which as I said aren't doing much for anybody except the companies that sell the chemicals. Andrew Kimbrell is founder and executive director of the Center for Food Safety. I'm Greg Dalton. Our other guests today here at Climate One are Rob Fraley, chief technology officer of Monsanto, and Jessica Lundberg from Lundberg Family Farms, and Nate Johnson from Grist. Uh, Rob Fraley, I want to go back to something that Andrew Kimbrell said about the amount of crops that go into cars and cattle. There's a recent uh, cover story of National Geographic that had a plan for feeding the world going forward 9 billion people. It called for less meat consumption yep. and actually changing the, the thing that, that Andrew Kimbrell was just talking about. I'd like to know if you actually agree with him that the way the crops into cattle and cars is bad policy in America. I uh, read the, uh, I don't know if any of you have had a chance to see it, the National Geographic, the May issue. I, uh, I loved it. I loved the simplicity of the plan. I liked the, uh, I liked the fact that I think it really reflects what a, a common ground approach needs to be. You know, so much of the dialogue and discussion gets focused on the extremes that I think we, uh, we, uh, we forget that there's, uh, that there's so much in the middle to, uh, to, to achieve. So the beauty of this plan is it laid out five simple steps. The first thing it said was freeze agriculture's footprint. We are really close to being able to do that. The efficiency gains that are occurring in agriculture, not only in the United States, but around the world, are, uh, are uh, incredible. So I think that's possible. Second thing is, you know, use the technology we have and use all the techniques. I mean, I believe we should be using organic, we should be using conventional, we should be using biotech, we should be using all our tools and, and raise yields. The third thing it says is really improve efficiency. And that's really the, uh, the beauty, I think, of the precision ag tools. I mean, we're literally at the point now where we can map every single field of crops 
we can study them, we can make recommendations to, to farmers. I was just talking to scientists today from Berkeley who are doing a lot of this really exciting work in terms of, of studying the weather and, and the cool things that they're doing. Uh, water, I mean, water is the big issue in agriculture. And, and now having you know, monitors and, and, and devices that you, you water really specifically and you don't overwater the crop, I mean, that, that's got to be so important in some of the things that you do. And obviously, you know, this year in California really points to the importance of water. So, and the other things that they recommended were change the diets. I mean, we all know, you know, to your point, and I think, Andrew, that, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of what we raise as grain goes into feed animals, and it's less efficient. Diet modification for health purposes and other reasons makes sense. And then the other piece that I thought was really cool was, uh, was the emphasis on reduction of waste. It's been estimated that about 25% of the food that gets produced around the planet gets wasted. And that's a combination of everything from helping to support, you know, refrigeration in some countries to portion control to rethink packaging. And, and, and the beauty of this was it, it, it laid it all out. And, and that's what excites me. And, and, and I think we can actually go one step further than what they put in here. If, if we do these things, by 2050, when population reaches 9.6 billion, I was doing the math on the way here, and so close your ears, Jessica, but I'll be 97 years old by, uh, by 2050. So I'm not talking about me, but I'm talking about my three kids. That's what, that's what gets me up in the morning thinking about them. And I think if we do these things, we'll produce more than enough food to feed the world, but we'll produce enough food that we can really start to think about how we start taking land out of agriculture and production. For me, that's the win. That, that's really what's worth going after. And are you willing to go to Iowa and say that? Is Monsanto as a company willing to go say we need to have less animal change, the farm bill change ag policy? I, absolutely. That... I mean, I, I give these kind of talks uh, all the time. And I think growing up on a farm, uh, you know, my experience has been farmers are more focused on sustainability, more focused. I mean, they're the ones who are working the land. They're the ones who are thinking about how they pass that land on to generations. I mean, you guys wrestle with that all the time in terms of how do we, uh, how do we preserve our environment. I mean, the people who live on the land, I think, are the, are the real conservationists. Nate Johnson, I'd like to get your, your thoughts on, on that plan and shifting diets away from animal protein, which has big carbon consequences. What we uh, eat is perhaps more consequential than what we drive. Let's right. have your comment on that. Yeah, I mean, I, I know Jonathan Foley who wrote that piece, and uh, I thought he did a great job with it. He's the new Cal uh, director of the California Academy of Sciences. He'll be right. here at Climate One later this year. Uh, go ahead. Yeah, I think, I, you know, the, the question is, I think we all have pretty similar goals. You know, my goal would be to have humans be able to feed themselves in a way that's equitable and sustainable and make the earth a more beautiful, delicious place in doing it. And if we start from there and say, okay, what are the tools that we want to use to do this? You know, I don't think we'd go through and, and say, are GMOs necessary? I think we'd, we'd go through all of these things. We'd be looking at politics and food waste and and then we'd be looking at individual GMOs. You know, we'd be saying, you know, that disease-resistant banana is going to be really useful. I want that, you know. This herbicide-resistant soy, yeah, well, you know. I, I do think that there's, you know, there's some, some nuances that Andy glossed over, that there has been some benefits of introducing the herbicide-resistant soy. And there's, I think there absolutely are some uh, problems with the consolidation that uh, has, has resulted just from making money. But uh, I think that that's one of the things that we would say, meh, I don't know if we, we need this so much for, uh, for our grand plan here. 
who really benefits from GMOs? Is it farmers? Is it consumers? Is it just the company, the fertilizer companies? Who benefits, Nate Johnson? Well, the, there's economists that have done the research on this, and they've who's captured the benefits of this new technology, and the, the seed industries have gotten the lion's share of the benefits, the people who made the innovations, and farmers have gotten a big chunk of the benefits, and then there's a consumers have seen a, a very small decrease in price, but small enough that most of us wouldn't notice it. There's also, uh, we glossed over earlier that the human health impact, which I do want to come back to briefly. Uh, Nate Johnson, I learned from your writing of a, of a report from the American uh, Association for the Advancement of Science that said some things, I don't know if you can uh, recite what that is, uh, what they found about the health, human health impacts of GMOs. Well, I, I don't know exactly what they said, but there's, um, when, what I was really surprised to see when I went through and looked at this is if you, if you look at all of, the, all of the big scientific organizations, Advancement of Science, National Academies of Science, the, the European Union, you know, nobody's proved that this is safe, but nobody has proved that walking down the street is safe either. And, um, you know, it, as close as any new technology can be proved safe, what you do is you go and you bring together the smartest heads in the room and you you bring together many different fields, uh, toxicologists and ecologists and uh, plant biologists, and you have them assess the science that's out there. And w when you do that, yes, there are some studies that you've probably heard about because they're the ones that get reported on that suggest there's some uh, health hazards. But you have to weigh that against the hundreds of independently funded studies that suggest just the opposite. And when you do that, it really they really start to look pretty safe. The, the actual the AAAS actually looked at uh, 25 years of research, 130 research projects, and they said the science is quite clear. Crop improvement by molecular techniques of biotechnology is safe. They said that was backed up by the World Health Organization, the American Medical Association, the National Academy of Sciences, et cetera. So Andrew Kimbrell, uh, is there a something of a ideology on the left that says nuclear power is bad, GMOs are bad, similarly as there is on the right when people are chided for saying, I don't believe climate scientists, climate change isn't happening. There's ideology towards science on both sides. Yeah, except, I mean, in the late 80s, when uh, we not only said in the 90s, you didn't say, we also litigated, saying, you know, if you keep using this amount of Roundup, uh, Darwin is going to show up. You know, we're talking about fourth grade science here, right? Darwin's going to show up because the weeds are going to develop resistance to this. And I hate to say it, but several people at Monsanto, literally in court and elsewhere, said, no, that ain't going to happen. Uh, that glyphosate is a natural plant hormone and there will be no additional resistance. That happened. I was there. Now we know that 50% of American farms in America do have weeds that are resistant to Roundup. And so right now, we have at, at uh, USDA Dow Chemical saying it wants to sort of replace Monsanto with its 2,4-D, which was an element agent orange, 2,4-D tolerant corn, soy, and cotton. That's up for approval right now. It could be approved as soon as September. And according to Dave Mortensen at Penn State, right now we have about 46 million pounds of 2,4-D, which is a more toxic herbicide than, than Roundup, certainly. Uh, about 46 million pounds, they're saying it could be up to 350 more million pounds that'll have to be used. But there's already resistance to 2,4-D, so Monsanto, not to be outdone, has now come back, and this is where most of their research is, not in vegetables. This is where, if you look at their field trials, and we look at all of them, uh, they have now come back with dicamba-resistant. Dicamba is a very toxic herbicide that volatilizes and can have non-target crops miles away that are destroyed by it, 
organic or conventional. Uh, so what we're seeing is a chemical arms race uh, after a roundup, uh, and we're, we're at peak herbicides, there might be new ones, that's why they're going back to 2,4-D and back to dicamba. We are talking about 800 million or more extra pounds of these herbicides, many of them more toxic than Roundup, 2,4-D and dicamba, poured on our crops the next 10 to 15 years. And it's planned obsolescence, Greg, because sooner or later, Darwin's going to show up again. And we're going to have these weeds that are resistant to these. And unless you believe miraculously you're going to come up with another Roundup, and I haven't heard anyone at Monsanto say they are, uh, you know, broad-based and all the other aspects of that, we are going to have millions and millions and millions of acres of American cropland that are choked. Talk about feeling for the farmers and their problems. I mean, there are already cotton farmers in the South. They can't knock over that pigweed with a combine. And uh, you, you can be talking about a, a, a really semi-catastrophic situation with weeds that we don't know how to get rid of. That is planned obsolescence. That's a very, very, very bad plan for the future. Cover crops, you know, which is really an absolutely important crop rotation. We've seen good science coming out of Iowa that says you can reduce up to 70 to 85 percent of weeds using these sustainable methods. Going down this track, yes, it profits the chemical companies and it makes it easier for large farmers to apply the herbicides. But with this uh, science, so it's not that we're against science. I'm talking about this is like fourth grade science, that adaption was going to happen. And the same thing with BT. We now have rootworm, which is the big problem. Everybody knows in corn, rootworm, it is the billion-dollar problem, they call it. Well, guess what? When, you have, when we, as organic uh, gardeners, when we spray our BT, that doesn't cause that much resistance. But when that BT is in the plant 24-7, guess what? Darwin showed up. The rootworm is now, and we're seeing this all over, studies all over the place, peer-reviewed studies, that say that the rootworm is now resistant to BT. So not only is this bad because we have to spray all those pesticides again, but it means a very important tool for organic farming, which is BT, is being undermined. So we're not unscientific at all. I'm talking like fourth grade science. It's the other side that's been denying this all the time, that this isn't going to happen, that this terrible scenario, this domino spin of more and more and more herbicides. Uh, they were the ones, I think, that didn't really look at adaption seriously. And that is a serious, serious situation for American agriculture, because we decided to go down this path. And there is another wonderful path. I'm going to say we have some agreement. By the way, I don't want to say that we don't. Food waste is an extraordinarily difficult problem, and it's a problem that we all have to address built into our commodity system. We also completely believe that we've got to reduce our animal. I don't think we should eat industrial meat at all. I think it's, I think it's, a, it's a moral crime as well as an environmental problem. But we know that even just the water, 2,500 gallons for just one pound of beef. So I think we agree on a lot of those steps. But I think we disagree on the direction that biotechnology is going. I'd like to hear uh, from Rob Fahey. We from agree Monsanto. on one more thing, that uh, Darwin is alive and well. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> that, that's, that's, a, that's an important thing to maybe start as a basis <laughs> for, uh, for common ground. So exactly. as I said, uh, farmers have been battling uh, bugs and weeds from the beginning of time. Uh, they're going to continue uh, to battle those weeds and bugs. I think our choice as a society is do we, uh, do we arm farmers with, uh, with, uh, with newer tools? And I absolutely... Uh, Believe that uh, that you know the role of science has uh, has got a big uh, place here. So you're you're right. I mean, weeds have become resistant. Uh, they've been but, but is Monsanto making it worse by by accelerating this chemical arms race? I I don't think so at all. I mean, we're working with new generation genes. The the beauty of science is is that and and we're in such a rich period where you know this is the heart of innovation, and these new tools can help. Uh, and they add to the tools and the practices and can give us those opportunities to, uh, to meet these challenges. You know, new bug control traits, 
new weed control technologies to meet the challenges of the future. And as I said earlier, these challenges aren't going to get better. They're going to get worse with climate change. And we need to, to you know, arm ourselves with all the tools that are, that are possible. And that, that's what we believe in. And all the practices. I mean, there is clearly room for all these methods. You know, you know, we sell lots of seed for organic production. We sell lots of seed for conventional production. We sell biotechnology seeds around the world. And farmers, I think, are really smart in terms of how they use these tools, how they integrate the tools, how they bring them in with their best practices. And as a scientist, uh, I really believe in that. Rob Fraley is Chief Technology Officer at Monsanto. We're talking about GMOs and food production at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Our other guests are Nate Johnson, a writer for Grist, Andrew Campbell from the Center for Food Safety, and Jessica Lundberg from Lundberg Family Farms. Nate Johnson, you want to jump in there? And we're going to talk about labeling and disclosure and then go to audience questions. So quick, Nate Johnson. Well, I just I, I think the point is that it's, it's not the tool. It's how you use it. It's the social structure that you, uh, you put around it. And so... Um, if you know the resistance was there before we had these GMOs, I I think that the the companies and the governments who uh, structured this in such a way that there's an incentive to use these all the time do bear the blame for for this resistance that we're seeing in, in an acceleration of resistance. You know we're, we get resistance no matter what, of course, um, but I think the people with the uh, power to set the structures and set the incentives really have to help uh, prevent this tragedy of the commons with the, with the farmers so that everybody's not uh, competing against each other to, you know, to use the weed killer first before it becomes unusable. Let's talk about labeling. There's a big move in states around the country, in California, other state capitals, there's been ballot initiatives. Uh, Rob Fraley, don't consumers have a right to know what's in their food and shouldn't GMO labeling be a matter of transparency and consumer right to know? Yeah, I, I absolutely uh, believe in that. Um, it always surprises a lot of people when we talk about uh, about the labeling discussion. The first place I start is is that uh, you know the uh, we, as a company we support voluntary labeling of these products uh, and believe that that's really the. Uh, you know, the right way to meet consumer demand and consumer choice. And there's all kinds of voluntary uh, labeling options. Uh, some of the most popular ones are uh, the organic standard. So when the organic standard was created over 20 years ago, it contained, you know, specifically uh, the exemption of GMOs uh, in organic production. So anything that's organic or certified as organic is, is GMO-free. Uh, recently, uh, the, you know, the GMO-free foods have, uh, have really uh, taken off. And I think the last time I looked on the website, I don't know if you know this, but I think there was over 20,000 foods that have now been labeled as uh, as GMO free. In fact, on the we were you know I was coming in from uh, from our, our Davis site and we uh, we stopped at a, a Safeway store about halfway uh, through here and I uh, I was uh, you know checking out the as I always do uh, what's in the grocery store shelf and what's going on and you know about half of the store was uh, was GMO free and half of the store was uh, was conventional and I think that's really uh, the way it should work and the beauty of the voluntary labeling. And, and, and why we support it so much. So I really celebrate when a Cheerios decides that they want to create a GMO-free brand or a Whole Foods says, you know, we are going to source ingredients and we're going to sell a, a premium product in, in that they think consumers will, uh, will benefit. And, really? Uh, absolutely. You celebrated when Cheerios... 
with Cheerios. With yeah, I actually, if you check my uh, my tweets and stuff, I've uh, I've done that. So uh, somebody get out. And, okay. the, and the reason is because it's that's the way the system should work. The companies that are going to the trouble, like you do, to create a uh, an organic product and sell it at a premium to a consumer who wants to purchase it, that's the way the system should work. Andrew Kimbrell, are voluntary uh, disclosure enough, or do, does there need to be mandatory disclosure of GMO labeling? There needs to be mandatory disclosure. Uh, there's a, several problems with voluntary. One is you are telling people that have not changed anything they've done that they have the burden of labeling. Right? I haven't changed anything I'm doing. I've got my Andy's tacos there. You're saying you, to, to let the consumer know you've got to put the labeling on. You've got to do it. I'm putting something new in the market, which is genetic engineering. I don't have to do anything. But you have done the same thing. So it puts the burden on the wrong producer. You should put the burden on the producer who's putting the new proteins into food. Hey, you should label. You shouldn't tell somebody who hasn't changed whatever. Oh, for people to know, you're going to have to label. So that's one problem. You're putting the burden on the wrong producer who hasn't done anything different instead of putting the burden. And there's cost to labeling and, and there's changing costs. They're not, they're not huge, but there is cost. The second thing is, it's, as you pointed correctly out, you know, they didn't say, okay, all Cheerios is now going to be labeled. They had one you know, honey nut, not the different kinds of honey nuts, so it's not consistent. So the consumer has no knowledge, no consistency on knowing, hey, that is, that isn't. It's very catch-as-catch-can. You know, it seems to me if a company is going to, as Monsanto, and not just Monsanto, Dow and DuPont and many other companies, have gone to the patent office and said, we want a patent because we're putting completely novel material, DNA that's going to produce novel proteins in foods, and they get those patents, that they have the duty to then label it and say, hey, this food is novel, you know, or give up your patents, because you can't have it both ways. You can't say we're putting something novel in food and then not say, hey, there's nothing new here in the labeling. One other quick thing, which is they often say, well, we shouldn't label because it hasn't been proved dangerous. But if you look at all the labels that you see on your food, all the labels you see on the back of your Cheerios, all of the food dyes, if you see irradiation, which is labeled, if you see from concentrate or not, that's not there because the FDA thinks it's dangerous. I actually disagree with the FDA on a lot of this, but they think it's completely safe. It's just a change in the food, novel material in the food that they think the consumer has the right to know because it's not obvious visually looking at the food. So we're not, we, we don't say that you should mandatory label GMOs because they're dangerous. If they're dangerous, we shouldn't label them. We should take them off the market. Absolutely. Uh, it, it, but they are novel. They're patented novel material that consumers have the right to know about. And if it's not novel new material, then I hope Monsanto and the other companies will voluntarily rescind all of their patents and say you, uh, they aren't new. You can't have it both ways. We're talking about GMOs at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton, and my guests are Rob Fraley, Chief Technology Officer at Monsanto, Nate Johnson, a food writer for Grist, Andrew Kimbrell is Executive Director of the Center for Food Safety, and Jessica Lundberg is a farmer with Lundberg Family Farms. Let's have our first audience question. Welcome. Hi. For whoever wants to tackle this question, mine is for the monocultures that are being grown and the pesticides in the ground. What is the quality of the soil, and with whatever that quality is, is it possible to go back to growing the way we used to, or do we then become totally dependent on GMOs in that area, in that soil? Jessica Lundberg, you're closest to this. <laughs> Why don't you tackle that one? Well, I can't uh, talk to the quality of the soil, but when you say, can you go back, of course you can go back. I think if you look at some of the research that's been done by the Rodale Institute, uh, they provide a, an excellent example of that. Uh, that was a family farm that had been a heavily in, intent, a chemically intensive area in Pennsylvania, and they had a, 
uh, a complete uh, change of how the family farmed and they actually went organic and they went to crop rotation and they've shown measurable changes in the health of the soil. So of course we can go back. And I think that that's something that, that uh, we need to be aware of as farming progresses is that it has to be a, a continuous improvement process. We need to be constantly aware of the soil and its health and, and the effect of, uh, of growing food on the environment. Yeah. Let's have our next question, welcome. Hi, my name is Miguel Robles, I am from Mexico. And last year, the government tried to release permits to grow GMO corn in Mexico. We have 59 races of corn and hundreds of varieties that in them rely all our food. So I, we believe that's gonna happen what happened in India with the cotton seed, that we're gonna lose all our seeds if, if they allow Monsanto to grow GMO corn. Now, the, since October last year, there is a there is a moratorium on any kind of pilot commercial or experimental GMO corn crop in Mexico. So what happened also is that in Yucatan, they, they were growing soy, and Monsanto was saying that the, the bees, because Yucatan is the sixth major exporter of honey to the European Union, and Monsanto was saying that there was no problem because the, these bees won't visit the soy flowers or the soy crops. What happened? is that now a Jews also ban GMO soy because they, they found out that was contaminated all the honey with, mm -hmm. with soy. Why Monsanto lies once and again? Is, is my only question. Okay, Why they you. are lying all the time? Thank you. Rob Fraley. Uh, I was just uh, just in Mexico a few months ago uh, working uh, and meeting with uh, with officials there's a there's a lot of interest in biotechnology in Mexico and a lot of interest you know, Mexico is one of the the importers of corn uh, what we're, 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 what we're working with the uh, the government on is a is a staged introduction that the commercial production of corn is in the northern part of Mexico the center of origin is in the southern part and we're working and the commercial production is yellow corn, largely for chicken and animal feed. The domestic corn that's used for tacos is, is white corn. And so we're working with the government on how we get the, the best of both worlds, the preservation of the, of the native races and the benefit to the farmers to, uh, to use the technology to control some of the, the same challenges that farmers here in the U.S. have. Andrew Kimbrell, I mean, remember a big part of Food Inc. touched on this issue. Your, your response? Well, I mean, you know, first of all, when we talked about soil before, let's, and this is about climate, Let's not forget the enormous role the soil plays in sequestering carbon. Absolutely huge. When that carbon is released, it mixes with the air, we get CO2. So it is absolutely essential if we're going to deal with climate change that we not think that of our boundary with food is the supermarket, but remember, as the Lumberg family does so beautifully, that it is the soil. And uh, from 2006 to 2011 alone, about 1.25 million acres were cleared of forests for more soy and more corn. Now that means that all that carbon was released into the atmosphere. We have to stop doing that. We have to understand that we cannot continue with this ludicrous push towards biofuels. We now know that, that first-generation biofuels actually add 7% to, to, to greenhouse gases. It's a useless technology. Billions of money, uh, dollars of money is going into this technology from the government, and it's destroying our soil. So we have to think of our soil, and, and we're using our topsoil at 13 times greater the level than we can replace it. That is, that is a dead paradigm walking. You know, that's a zombie paradigm on our soil, and, and, and we need to make sure that that changes. We know from Ignacio Cipella right here at Berkeley that uh, genetic engineered corn has contaminated heritage corn. 
uh, in Mexico. Uh, and it is a scandal that that happened. And it was a scandal that it was covered up. And it was a scandal that the Nature magazine and others, you know, uh, did not publish it. And when they did, uh, they were forced to rescind it. And I do think that it is important to note, and Miguel would know this, but many people around this audience know this, that so many scientists, independent scientists, and I can give you a number of their names, including Ignacio Chapella, but we're, but we're also talking, you know, about Cornell scientists, we're talking about Cornell at Pennsylvania. Any scientist out there can tell you when they publish an independent science review on contamination or another problem with genetic engineered crops, they are hounded. They are persecuted. They are often denied tenure. So that is a serious issue we have with scientific, with corporate pressure and scientific independence. And uh, it is something that I have found very disturbing over the last many years, including what happened to Ignacio Chapella right here in Berkeley when he did talk about the contamination of Monsanto's corn uh, with Mexican corn. Let's have our next question. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. Thank you. Uh, I have a question about a comment you made, sir. You said. Uh, that if organics are labeled, that they're guaranteed not to have GMOs. That's the part you, of the standard, yeah. Do you seriously believe that? Because we both know that with pollen drift, you guys invade organic farms sometimes thousands of miles away. In Mexico, a thousand miles away, corn was infected. You can't control your own product. You can't guarantee that organic is organic. Rob Fraley, response? Yeah, so let me respond to that. And the way I actually had another uh, another point of uh, of common ground and that and alignment that I wanted to wanted to embellish. So the organic standard was uh, was actually uh, developed uh, to exclude the uh, the GMO technology, and it was actually designed, you know, very thoughtfully uh, 20 years ago. That as long as an organic farmer, you know, his intent was to grow an organic crop. Uh, you know, if there was accidental drift from a neighbor's chemical pesticide, or if there was accidental drift from from pollen, that that did not interfere with the the ability to to market that crop as an organic. And in fact, the just about two years ago, the USDA did a large study to to confirm you know the opportunity for coexistence. And and for me, one of the one of the real strengths of, of U.S. agriculture is the ability for all of these practices to coexist. You know, when I grew up on, on a farm and, and we, were, uh, we were growing uh, field corn, and everybody thinks corn is corn, there's white corn, there's yellow corn, there's field corn, there's blue corn, there's high amylose corn, there's high lysine corn, and the pollen is flowing for all of these products, you know, in agriculture, but farmers talk, there's databases, there's maps, and I think a real beauty of the U.S. agriculture system is how we can coexist and use multiple practices. And, uh, you know, people talk about monoculture. For me, the, the U.S. Is a, is a breadbasket of agricultural production for the world, and farmers have the flexibility. They're making a, a decision every year whether they were going to grow corn, whether they're going to grow soybean, whether they're going to grow wheat, whether they're going to grow alpha, alfalfa, all of these crops that, that have the flexibility to meet market demands. That's a strength, not, not a weakness of the U.S. system. Well, there's lots of subsidies that distort that system, but let's uh, go, go to our next. Just a quick note on this. I mean, coexistence is often treated by Tom Vilsack, who I know is here. Uh, USDA Secretary, as a political question. It is not a political question. As the questioner points out, the idea of coexistence is a scientific question, and it's a fairly easy one to ask, but a very difficult one to answer, which is there any scientific way to control 
genetic contamination, pollution from genetically engineered crops? And the answer to that right now is, except for massive geographic separation, growing a crop in Vermont, not wanting to go to Montana, there, the answer to that is no. We do not have any peer-reviewed scientific evidence on saying this is the way we can ensure that this organic crop is not going to be contaminated. So coexistence isn't a political session. Let's just get along. It's all the tools in the toolbox. That's the tool that contaminates all the other tools in the toolbox. And the question is, how can we stop that? And the answer is, we don't know. USDA doesn't even know how the rice contamination, which was one small, you know, this research plot in the South, contaminated over a billion and a half uh, of conventional rice that couldn't be sold overseas to Japan or Europe. Farmers had a successful class action suit. And if you ask the USDA today, how did that happen? How could one small little field trial lead to that massive contamination throughout the South and that huge loss for farmers? USDA will give you this answer, because they've given it to me. We don't know. Uh, let's have the next question. Welcome to Climate One. Great, hopefully a fun one. Uh, question about, as each of you come from a very uh, deep industry perspective, I'd love to know some paradigm shifts that you may think of that might be coming up be it for uh, managing, you mentioned the, the dramatic amount of water used in both agricultural as well as uh, with, uh, with cattle. Do we see things, as well as the, some of the, the contamination issues, do you see coming up in the horizon for the, the billions more people, maybe large-scale greenhouses that can create isolation? Is this, you think, maybe commercially viable? Or unconventional sources of protein, such as some of the cricket flower things and eating grasshoppers and... Um, kind of some speculation and, and you know, paradigm shifts you might see coming here. Who would like to take a brief tackle at that one, I was, Rob Freely? I was talking, uh, yeah, yeah, it was a great question on the paradigm shift because I was, uh, yesterday I was uh, doing uh, Bloomberg's Next Big Thing and, the, uh, and I told you the, uh, the talk before me was, uh, was uh, colonization of Mars and so I don't know whether we want to produce uh, protein on Mars and export it but that would be uh, that would be a pretty big uh, seismic uh, seismic shift in terms of what I see now I, I really think a lot of it's going to be uh, diet modification I think it's going to be health driven and I think that's going to be a, a really important uh, factor you know you mentioned water water is the big deal uh, and it's going to take a, a lot of different approaches we do a lot of breeding for uh, for uh, for drought tolerance you know, and, the, and, you know, a lot of people don't think about it this way, but, you know, when I left my dad's farm in 1970, the average corn yields were 70 bushels an acre. Today, corn yields are, are 150. They've doubled. The rainfall's the same. So we've actually been able to capture more and more of that water and produce a bushel of corn for half the water that we did, uh, we did only 30 or 40 years ago. Those are important gains. There's biotech traits that are impacting drought. There's irrigation technologies. There, there's such an acute sensitization around water. It, it is, I think, really the issue. I mean, we'll, we'll talk about water for the next 30 or 40 years, often like we talk about energy and, uh, and, and fuels today. It, it's just gonna, it's going to determine where and how we grow crops. And so it, for me, it, it's really top of mind. Rob Freely, I, I couldn't agree more on the water issue. I think we're hitting peak water before we hit peak oil. I would note that the USDA, when it analyzed DroughtGuard, the Monsanto product, did say that it is no better than conventional varieties. Uh, so that's in their environmental assessment. So let's just, I want to just, you know, well, get that let, out. Let, let's build on that because yeah. it was launched last year and, and, and DroughtGuard is uh, already being sold on a half million acres. I'm not uh, saying you're not selling it. I'm telling you what the environmental assessment said, <laughs> which is that it is no better than conventional varieties. And that's in the environmental assessment. You know that. That's Jessica well. Lundberg. All, all I was going to say is that... Uh, that the uh, corn yields that you made mention to, that most of the uh, improvements in that corn yield was actually through traditional breeding and through the genetic diversity through public institutions. Let's have our next question. 
Thank you. My question is for Nate Johnson as well as Rob Fraley. Um, specifically, Nate uh, Johnson, uh, you declare yourself in a recent article on the next generation of genetic engineering, namely synthetic biology, as a skeptic of, of corporations. Um, and your writing actually appears to be more skeptical of environmentalists more than the corporate-based science. In fact, you say that activists are obstructionist, utopian, and blocking solutions. And I'm wondering if you can explain, and for, for both you and, and, and Rob, if you can explain where the burden of proof should be, the public or the patent holders, and why. You've got about two minutes to do that. So, uh, <laughs> Nate Johnson. Well, I absolutely am more skeptical of, of corporations than activists. I'm skeptical of anybody who is making money off of the claims that they're uh, presenting to me. I'm interested in figuring out what, what, what can we do to move the ball forward? What can we do so that we don't have the wool pulled out over our eyes? And um, so I'm interested in, in forcing people to show me the burden of proof. Rob Fraley? You know, I, I think, you know, probably in my mind that one of the, the biggest issues with, with the, the intense focus that's occurred on GMOs is it's really it's it's really a distraction from what what the real challenge is, and you know here we are. We know that the world is going to reach 9.6 billion people. When you do the math, we have to produce twice as much food as we do today in the next 36 years. Where, where I put my attention on is how in the heck are we going to do that? And that's why we need you know the breeding tools, we need the biotech tools, we need the precision ag tools, and that's where we should put our put our focus. I'm an optimist. I actually believe that we can do it. And I think for me, that's the, that's the reason we should have the, the, the real discussion on, on, on what are the plan, what are the steps, how do we move this forward? Uh, we, we've spent almost all of our time talking about history in the past, and that's not going to solve the challenges for my kids. Well, Michigan State in 2006 has a major, I, 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 everyone please look at this great Michigan State study, Catherine Badgley and the group, they did, it's a huge study. And their answer is that organic not only can feed the world, it will feed the world with less land. This is Michi sorry, University of Michigan, Catherine Badgley, and the FAO and the World Bank got together, as most of us know, in 2009 with the famous ISTD report, IASTD 2009, where they have a huge, I'm sure you've read it, they have a huge, huge program for how to feed the world. They, they deal with this and with the climate in mind. I recommend everyone read it. They talk about a more holistic approach to agriculture, not growing commodities, but growing food, concentrating on the, on the 2.1 billion uh, people, the poorest in the world who live in rural areas, how to strengthen their farm communities and their farms. And they, at the end, say that biotechnology offers, at best, a meager opportunity. So there's people who have done the research. I recommend you look it up. We have to end it there. That's the last word. Andrew Kimbrell is founder and executive director of the Center for Food Safety. We've also been listening to Jessica Lundberg from Lundberg Family Farms, Nate Johnson, a writer for Grist, and Rob Fraley, chief technology officer at Monsanto. I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you for coming to the Commonwealth Club and listening to Climate One today. Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan organization. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. Our producer is Jane Ann Chan. Alyssa Kerr is the assistant producer. The audio engineer is Andre Hurd and editor is Annie Chelsea. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. This is Climate One, a conversation about powering America's future.